Section 56 of Volume 1D of History of England From the Invasion of Julius Caesar to the Revolution of 1688 This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org Recording by Sławek Księżycki History of England from the Invasion of Julius Caesar to the Revolution of 1688 by David Hume Volume 1D Section 56 Chapter 48 Part 2 The states of Bohemia, alarmed at these mighty preparations, began also to solicit foreign assistance, and together with that support which they obtained from the Evangelical Union in Germany, they endeavoured to establish connections with greater princes. They cast their eyes on Frederick, Elector Palatine. They considered that, besides commanding no despicable force of his own, he was son-in-law to the King of England, and nephew to Prince Maurice, whose authority was become almost absolute in the United Provinces. They hoped that these princes, moved by the connections of blood, as well as by the tie of their common religion, would interest themselves in all the fortunes of Frederick, and would promote his greatness. They therefore made him a tender of their crown, which they considered as elective, and the young palatine, stimulated by ambition, without consulting either James or Maurice, whose opposition he foresaw, immediately accepted the offer, and marched all his forces into Bohemia, in support of his new subjects. The news of these events no sooner reached England, then the whole kingdom was on fire to engage in the quarrel. Scarcely was the ardour greater with which all the states of Europe in former ages flew to rescue the Holy Land from the dominion of infidels. The nation was as yet sincerely attached to the blood of their monarchs, and they considered their connection with the Palatine, who had married a daughter of England, as very close and intimate, and when they heard of Catholics carrying on wars and persecutions against Protestants, they thought their own interests deeply concerned, and regarded their neutrality as a base desertion of the cause of God and of his holy religion. In such a quarrel, they would gladly have marched to the opposite extremity of Europe, have plunged themselves into a chaos of German politics, and have expended all the blood and treasure of the nation by maintaining a contest with the whole house of Austria at the very time and in the very place in which it was the most potent and almost irresistible. But James, beside that his temper was too little enterprising for such vast undertakings, was restrained by another motive, which had a mighty influence over him. He refused to patronize the revolt of subjects against their sovereign. From the very first he denied to his son-in-law the title of King of Bohemia. He forbade him to be prayed for in the churches under that appellation, and though he owned that he had nowise examined the pretensions, privileges, and constitution of the revolted states, so exalted was his idea of the rights of kings that he concluded subjects must ever be in the wrong when they stood in opposition to those who had acquired or assumed that majestic title. Thus, even in measures founded on true politics, James intermixed so many narrow prejudices as diminished his authority 
and exposed him to the imputation of weakness and error. Meanwhile, affairs everywhere hastened to a crisis. Ferdinand levied a great force under the command of the Duke of Bavaria and the Count of Bacoy, and advanced upon his enemy in Bohemia. In the Low Countries, Spinola collected a veteran army of 30,000 men. When Edmunds, the king's resident at Brussels, made remonstrances to the Archduke Albert, he was answered that the orders for this armament had been transmitted to Spinola from Madrid, and that he alone knew the secret destination of it. Spinola again told the minister that his orders were still sealed, but if Edmunds would accompany him in his march to Koblenz, he would there open them and give him full satisfaction. It was more easy to see his intentions than to prevent their success. Almost at one time it was known in England that Frederick, being defeated in the great and decisive battle of Prague, had fled with his family into Holland, and that Spinola had invaded the Palatinate, and meeting with no resistance except from some princes of the Union, and from one English regiment of 2,400 men, commanded by the brave Sir Horace Vere, had, in a little time, reduced the greater part of that principality. High were now the murmurs and complaints against the king's neutrality and inactive disposition. The happiness and tranquillity of their own country became distasteful to the English when they reflected on the grievances and distresses of their Protestant brethren in Germany. They considered not that their interposition in the wars of the continent, though agreeable to religious zeal, could not at that time be justified by any sound maxims of politics, that, however exorbitant the Austrian greatness, the danger was still too distant to give any just alarm to England, that mighty resistance would yet to be made by so many potent and warlike princes and states in Germany, ere they would yield their neck to the yoke, that France, now engaged to contract a double alliance with the Austrian family, must necessarily be soon roused from her lethargy and oppose the progress of so hated a rival that in the further advance of conquests even the interests of the two branches of that ambitious family must interfere and beget mutual jealousy and opposition that a land war carried on at such a distance would waste the blood and treasure of the english nation without any hopes of success that the sea war indeed might be both safe and successful against Spain, but would not affect the enemy in such vital parts as to make them stop their career of success in Germany, and abandon all their acquisitions, and that the prospect of recovering the Palatinate being at present desperate, the affair was reduced to this simple question, whether peace and commerce with Spain, or the uncertain hopes of plunder and of conquest in the Indies, were preferable? a question which at the beginning of the king's reign had already been decided, and perhaps with reason, in favour of the former advantages. James might have defended his pacific measures by such plausible arguments, but these, though the chief, seem not to have been the sole motives which swayed him. He had entertained the notion that as his own justice and moderation had shone out so conspicuously throughout all these transactions, the whole house of Austria, though not awed by the power of England, would willingly, from mere respect to his virtue, submit themselves to so equitable an arbitration. 
he flattered himself that after he had formed an intimate connection with the spanish monarch by means of his son's marriage the restitution of the palatinate might be procured from the motive alone of friendship and personal attachment he perceived not that his inactive virtue the more it was exalted the greater disregard was it exposed to he was not sensible that the spanish match was itself attended with such difficulties that all his art of negotiation would scarcely be able to summon them much less that this match could in good policy be depended on as the means of procuring such extraordinary advantages his unwarlike disposition increased by age riveted him still faster in his errors and determined him to seek the restoration of his son-in-law by remonstrances and entreaties by arguments and embassies rather than by blood and violence and the same defect of carriage which held him in awe of foreign nations made him likewise afraid of shocking the prejudices of his own subjects and kept him from openly avowing the measures which he was determined to pursue or perhaps he hoped to turn these prejudices to account and by their means engage his people to furnish him with supplies of which their excessive frugality had hitherto made him so sparing and reserved he first tried the expedient of a benevolence or free gift from individuals pretending the urgency of the case which would not admit of leisure for any other measure but the jealousy of liberty was now aroused and the nation regarded these pretended benevolences as real extortions contrary to law and dangerous to freedom however authorized by ancient precedent a parliament was found to be the only resource which could furnish any large supplies and wrists were accordingly issued for summoning that great council of the nation in this parliament there appeared at first nothing but duty and submission on the part of the commons and they seemed determined to sacrifice everything in order to maintain a good correspondence with their prince they would not allow no mention to be made of the new customs or impositions which had been so eagerly disputed in the former parliament the imprisonment of the members of that parliament was here by some complaint of but by the authority of the graver and more prudent part of the house that grievance was buried in oblivion and being informed that the king had remitted several considerable sums to the palatine the commons without a negative voted him two subsidies and that too at the very beginning of the session contrary to the maxims frequently adopted by their predecessors afterwards they proceeded but in a very temperate manner to the examination of grievances they found that patents had been granted to sir gilles mompesson and sir francois michel for licensing inns and alehouses that great sums of money had been exacted under pretext of these licenses and that such innkeepers as presumed to continue their businesses without satisfying the rapacity of the patentees had been severely punished by fine imprisonment and vexatious prosecutions the same persons had also procured a patent which they shared with sir edward villers 
brother to buckingham for the sole making of gold and silver thread and lace and had obtained very extraordinary powers for preventing any rivalship in these manufactures they were armed with authority to search for all goods which might interfere with their patent and even to punish at their own will and discretion the makers importers and vendors of such commodities many had grievously suffered by these exorbitant jurisdiction and the lace which had been manufactured by the patentees was universally found to be adulterated and to be composed more of copper than of the precious metals these grievances the commons represented to the king and they met with a very gracious and very cordial reception he seemed even thankful for the information given him and declared himself ashamed that such abuses unknowingly to him had crept into his administration i assure you said he had i before heard these things complained of i would have done the office of a just king and out of parliament have punished them as severely and peradventure more than you now intend to do a sentence was passed for the punishment of michel and compasson it was executed on the former the latter broke prison and escaped villers was at that time sent purposely on a foreign employment and his guilt being less enormous or less apparent than that of the others he was the more easily protected by the credit of his brother buckingham encouraged by this success the commons carried their scrutiny and still with a respectful hand into other abuses of importance the great seal was at that time in the hands of the celebrated bacon created viscount st albans a man universally admired for the greatness of his genius and beloved for the courteousness and humanity of his behaviour he was the great ornament of his age and nation and naught was wanting to render him the ornament of human nature itself but that strength of mind which might check his intemperate desire of preferment that could add nothing to his dignity and might restrain his profuse inclination to expense that could be requisite neither for his honour nor entertainment his want of economy and his indulgence to servants had involved him in necessities and in order to supply his prodigality he had been tempted to take bribes by the title of presents and that in a very open manner from suitors in chancery it appears that it had been usual for former chancellors to take presents and it is pretended that bacon who followed the same dangerous practice had still in the seat of justice preserved the integrity of a judge and had given just decrees against those very persons from whom he had received the wages of incuity complaints rose the louder on that account and at last reached the house of commons who sent up an impeachment against him to the peers the chancellor conscious of guilt deprecated the vengeance of his judges and endeavoured by a general avowal to escape the confusion of a stricter inquiry the lords insisted on a particular confession of all his corruptions he acknowledged twenty-eight articles and was sentenced to pay a fine of forty thousand pounds to be imprisoned in the tower during the king's pleasure to be forever incapable of any office place or employment and never again to sit in parliament or come within the verge of the court this dreadful sentence dreadful to a man of nice sensibility to honour he survived five years and being released in a little time from the tower 
his genius yet unbroken supported itself amidst involved circumstances and a depressed spirit and shone out in literary productions which have made his guilt or weaknesses be forgotten or overlooked by posterity in consideration of his great merit the king remitted his fine as well as all the other parts of his sentence conferred on him a large pension of one thousand eight hundred pounds a year and employed every expedient to alleviate the weight of his age and misfortunes and that great philosopher at last acknowledged with regret that he had too long neglected the true ambition of a fine genius and by plunging into business and affairs which require much less capacity but greater firmness of mind than the pursuits of learning had exposed himself to such grievous calamities the commons had entertained the idea that they were the great patrons of the people and that the redress of all grievances must proceed from them and to this principle they were chiefly beholden for the regard and consideration of the public in the execution of this office they now kept their ears open to complaints of every kind and they carried their researches into many grievances which though of no great importance could not be touched on without sensibly affecting the king and his ministers the prerogative seemed every moment to be invaded the king's authority in every article was disputed and james who was willing to correct the abuses of his power would not submit to have his power itself questioned and denied after the house therefore had sitten near six months and had as yet brought no considerable business to a full conclusion the king resolved under pretence of the advanced season to interrupt their proceedings and he sent them word that he was determined in a little time to adjourn them till next winter the commons made application to the lords and desired them to join in a petition for delaying the adjournment which was refused by the upper house the king regarded this project of a joint petition as an attempt to force him from his measures he thanked the peers for their refusal to concur in it and told them that if it were their desire he would delay the adjournment but would not so far comply with the request of the lower house and thus in these great national affairs the same peevishness which in private altercations often raises a quarrel from the smallest beginnings produced a mutual coldness and disgust between the king and the commons end of section fifty six chapter forty eight part two recording by